0: Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, Rod Murray guiding proceedings as the golf world moves on from the Tokyo Games and retreats back into the safety and comfort of our own familiar bubble. We had our rant last week about the games and that sparked a bit of discussion, but it'll be a special treat this week to talk to someone who actually knows what they're on about. Ali Whitaker spent some uh, spent more time at the Kasumagaseki Country Club these last two weeks than some of their life members have. Ali will be along in just a bit. To give us from perspective from on the ground, it was an intriguing fortnight of golf. Do you know they don't have fortnights in America, Luke? Our American listeners won't know what I'm talking about. It's two weeks, Fortnite. For I'll be corrected, I'm sure, if I'm wrong, but they don't have Fortnite in America.
1: Well, they've got a they've got a game Fortnite, which they're absolutely nuts about. So <laughs> I don't,
0: take it. You're taking this in some, completely the wrong direction. You're going to get some pushback on that. I'm going to I'm going to introduce you in a minute. So hold your horses. Ali won't be our only guest today. They lockdown sucks, but one of its advantages is that Mike Clayton can't dodge your calls when you want him to record a podcast. So we'll have the joy of Mike's company in a moment. Also, now Whittinger and Clayton might be big names in the golf world, but around these parts, there's a pecking order when it comes to the introductions, and the name that's always atop that list is, of course, my co-host Adrian Logo. I think he might have got out to play golf for the first time in a while this past week. Like, did you play, and how did you play?
1: Uh, yeah, I played. I had first hit in about six weeks. I went out to Little Camaray in in Sydney, which nice. a lot of listeners would be head. familiar with. We're going to dig that, and up to uh, yeah, surprisingly, got the ball airborne on first shot and had a had a really good. Good game. Camera is under a little bit of a cloud at the moment with some freeway construction way. going through the, the freeway there. Um, so it was journey. good to see
0: it. In its current form, because it'll yes. be quite different in a few years. That's exactly right. Uh, I'm not going to do big formal introductions for our two guests today because that would take too long. And one of them a genuine chance to nod off. Ali Whitaker comes to us from Scotland after a <laughs> grueling trek from Tokyo. Ali, welcome. If you do nod off, we'll be able to see you on the camera so we can just work around it. But thanks for taking some time after what's been a pretty harrowing last uh, day or two, I would imagine, getting from Tokyo to Scotland.
2: It's been it has been a lively journey. I can confirm that, but it's been uh, it's been a good one, nonetheless. At least uh, now that the Tokyo buzz is slightly worn off, but not really. I'm still pretty much on cloud nine. We're going to come to that in just
0: a moment. Mike Clayton's locked down in God's country, just a stone's throw from the St Andrews Beach Golf Course on the Mornington Peninsula. Clayton's worst places to be locked down, I would think.
3: Yeah, I hear agents playing golf. And I wonder the COVID numbers are still rising there.
0: This is Sydney. Haven't you read the Herald Zone? You yeah, don't read we, the Murdoch Press? Yeah. We can play in two
1: balls. We don't have to hit a ball on, on the beach like you've got, you do. You've I, got- I look forward to your beach golf every time you're in lockdown, though. That's yeah.
3: fantastic. <laughs> you've got the strictest lockdowns in the world ever, except you can play golf when we couldn't. Yeah, the beach golf. I was on the beach. I went down to the beach with my sand on the other day, and I discovered something about hitting bunker shots. It was After 50 years, you'd think I'd figured out that I'd always move my head when I, I never saw the club at the ball. Bunker shots always kind of move like Anna. Anna Sorenson or Duval. I had that kind of action with my swing, but especially with bunker shots. And I started hitting balls and watching the club at the sand. It was like a revelation. Wow, this is good. This is better this than is, normal.
0: As always, we've gone down a rabbit hole, which was completely so, unexpected. But that's good to know, Claude. So you'll be going back to the tour now that you figured out sand playing.
3: No, I'm too old, yeah. useless for that. <laughs> uh, Can't play from a uh, hundred yards back, Adrian. Um, Rod.
0: Are, it's, uh, the game is multifaceted. Ali, let's come to you first since you've now officially been awake for about four weeks, as we said. Before we come to some <laughs> of the specifics about the games and the issues it raises, how was the Tokyo experience at the course? From the outside, it looked kind of surreal. You've got this two-week festival of the game, with the best players in the world, and no crowds.
2: That bit, yeah. I, I think we've had a year's worth of training on the no crowds and the majority of the players that were there were were fine with it. It was more just the loss of, of the experience that would have come with it. You know, J- Japan being, uh, I think it's the, let me, I think it's the second biggest golf market in the world.
0: Yeah, it would be. I think the US, absolutely. I think
2: the US is first and then it's Japan. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, I know that they've got more golf courses in Japan than the rest of Asia combined. So uh, it would have just been electric to have to have that atmosphere there. So it was, it was more just understanding what it could have been that yeah. sadly, um, sadly it wasn't, but it was still, yeah, I don't think, Nothing was really lost from it, but we could have gained a lot more.
0: Yeah. What were you expecting before you went, and did the reality match that? It's a pretty rare experience. There's probably been, what, six people in the world have commentated an Olympic Games golf tournament? It's
2: a pretty small club. True. It is It is a small club. I don't think they were broadcasting back in 1900 on the nine-hole comp, right. but also they, the they best had best a team. putting comp as well and a driving comp. I think the guy won it with 237 yards back then. Uh, but don't get Clayton started. No, don't. Don't don't start. Please don't get him started.
0: should have been a trigger warning. <laughs> when 237 yards meant
2: something. <laughs> yeah. It's, yes, I know. I know. It's so true. Yeah. And Clayton and I are in complete agreement on that as well. But uh, I think the thing that got me was that I walked in my very first day at the golf course, I walked in and went up to the kind of the, the venue manager and I said, oh, can I, get, um, can I get a pass that gets me inside the ropes? I need to go and see the course. And and that was a bit of a battle. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Like just talking through and his answer to everything was this is the Olympics, this is the Olympics. And I was like, I understand this, but obviously we're on different levels like of of what that actually means. And so just even trying to get inside the ropes and then they said don't talk to the players and I went, okay, that's interesting because our our producers are always telling us to get information and use our relationships as much as possible. And I went, okay, that's also really different. And it comes from these blanket rules that at the swimming centre, at the athletics, you can't approach people, whereas I'm walking around the golf course and good luck to anyone getting the quarters to not run up and try and give me a hug. You know, if I'm inside the ropes within, you know, on their, on their hole, they're heckling me from hundred metres away. So it's just a bit of a different beast on that front. Um, and that was my initial first impression was how differently the Olympics function to a normal golf broadcast.
0: Yeah, which kind of plugs into the stuff that we were talking about last week, and I want to go to this because uh, we talked about a tweet of yours that you'd sent out between the men's and the women's tournaments. So the men finished yeah. on the Sunday and then the women started on the Wednesday, and I think it was in the practice round you followed some of the players. And give us a thumbnail sketch of what that tweet was, then what some of the things that we said and some of the reaction you got to it and what you were trying to say. Uh,
2: I just, so I guess for me, I'm out there and I'm looking, I've walked four holes of the event I've seen on three of the four holes I've seen people hit either like long players hitting long irons in uh, to greens that weren't necessarily receptive to them nor designed for them, like with greens that were pitched away or in sections. So it's quite hard to get to anywhere near the pins. And the, the course had dried out so much since the men's where it was just a wedge. Like they they were spinning it back off different mm-hmm. sections. It was just so receptive. Uh, and for me, I I guess... It always comes back. Whenever there's a mixed event, it comes back to whether or not the scores need to be comparable, and whether or not that should be a goal in terms of course setup. Um, I actually just when I tested in this, like this evening, I saw some of the LPGA officials, and they came over and they said, "Your your tweet actually sparked a really important conversation for us, and we took it on board." And I said, "I wasn't trying to be critical. It was actually more observational." That I and and granted, they they did manage to find a way to balance it out uh in the in the next three days but um yeah i guess i was flagging just that it was playing long and whether or not we should be talking about that in short
0: yeah and is that more important or does the the way we approach that change on a stage that is we're told by most of those in the golf world is designed to bring in the non-golf public does that make a difference the vic open is one thing it's essentially a golf audience the olympics is a lot of non-golfers watching so there's things there's messages you might want to send isn't there
2: yeah well for, for me it's just a like i say it's a totally different beast the olympics and you don't realize it until you go there and if you haven't been there i don't know that you that you understand the breadth of it uh, they have a, a like a chadston shopping center of broadcast except it's halfway between broadcast and an army base and in every single shop there's someone else broadcasting like it, and they, and they have you know 100 simultaneous feeds going on you know and it's and they've got a lot of blanket rules but for me the vast majority of our, our audience at the Olympics were non-golfers to the point where, like, if I talked about bounce, I have to explain what bounce is. We have to say they're allowed to tap down stuff on the greens. I'm getting, I'm getting messages from people going, can you have your coach on the back? Can you, what can the caddy say to the player? And so you've got to really cater for a very broad audience, like for the, for the golfing fanatics, but also for the people at home. So if we say par's, pars the goal but birdies are good, and then we show a really tough golf course in, when we'd seen it the week before. I don't know. The balance is really hard to find. But I, I just think, in, in essence, what is more fun to watch? We have to make this look like a fun sport. And, guys, and people struggling for par isn't going to draw in as many people as people watching birdies. And as, as sad as that is from a commercial standpoint, because you want to find the right winner at the same time, you've really got to find that balance.
0: I've always wondered about that. Whether it is whether people do want to see birdies, and we might cut. That's a whole different issue. Which is there's probably a column in that at some point. Yeah, but it's that, an assumption that's we make. Golfing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but it's it's the golfing lens versus the non-golfing lens, and, and so a, I yeah. yeah, that's what probably. my my whole assumption is based off for that week is yeah. that the majority of the audience aren't golfers, and we're trying to get them to start the game. Yeah. And it's a really cool platform to have, but it's just tricky to manage to, to both crowds.
0: Yeah. Clates, so I thought you had the best response in Ali's tweet, which is, well, the golf course should play more for the men like it does for the women. It's the women who've got it yes. right. They should be yeah. hitting four or five irons into yeah. par fives. But what about that notion of the golf and non-golf lens? All of this that we're talking about here would sound like Swahili to a non-golfer. We are using words they don't understand, talking about concepts that would be completely foreign. What do you do in that situation? Because the Olympics is that is supposed to be that, non-golf audience, this is what golf works yeah.
3: like. I mean, my limited experience of the LPGA and women's golf, and i catered in Rio and I've catered in the British Open and a few LPGA, Thomas, is, as Tommy Watson, who for K- K- So Young, you, calls it, the lob wedge, pitching wedge, gap wedge, all day tour. LPGA stands for that. So it always struck me as the courses were too short because, one, they were defending against the short hitters and not wanting to make them look bad, whereas the men never have to worry about the player who finishes last, shooting a bad score. They don't care about that. They're trying to find the best player. The women, are, I've always thought women's golf has looked a bit like we don't want to have the worst players shooting embarrassing scores. Um, and the problem with the modern game is men's golf should be more like women's golf in terms of women's golf courses don't have a problem in terms of length. They can just they can play a six thousand nine hundred or seven thousand yard course. Without having to build new tees and knock down houses and move greens back, and so the problems the men's game have, the women don't have. But I, I, my limited observation is they play courses that are too short, given how good the players are, and they're incre- you know, the best players. do Tanagan and the quarters, and you know Sung Park and Se Young Kim, and the ones who can bomb, they smash it. They're way longer than I am. And they're playing you know six thousand six hundred yard courses, which are pitch and putt for them. Is
0: the issue not though, Clates and Ali? You probably speak to this better. Is the disparity between the shortest and the longest on the LPGA a much bigger gap than what we see on the PGA Tour? That's what it's always.
3: Well, no, because it's fifty yards on the PGA Tour between Zach Blair and Bryson DeChambeau, and it's probably fifty yards between Aria and uh, Mo Martin. So I don't think that necessarily holds up. And um, I forgot what I was going to say. It doesn't matter. Sorry, we've probably heard it before, anyway. Yeah, you probably have. <laughs> but um, <yeah. laughs>
2: Clates, just for the record, Clates and I have had this discussion many, many times, mm-hmm. and we are—I'm in total agreement with mm-hmm. Clates on that. That's not that we're not coming from competing arguments here. We're on the same boat, mm-hmm. but it's—it's it's more about, for me, the commercial and and the. The growth of the game aspect, which heavily influences my opinion for that week only. I love major setups. I wish we saw more of them. I would love to see 10 under as a winning score. It's, and it's purely that comparative, uh, thing where in Rio, they built the course so that they could get the right numbers for both sexes. Whereas this one was built in the nine, you know, 1929. So it's, um, it's more about trying to make it fit and the the decisions that they made. But, um, but obviously the LPJ were, were, quite happy that the argument was raised to them and then it made them kind of think on it for better or for worse but at least we got re- three really good players
3: in the medals
0: nothing yeah. bad ever comes from thinking about it. so i'm going to come to you in a minute i but i think clates is both making notes and i think he's remembered what he was going to, yeah. say. I'm,
3: I'm, I'm going to say um having cated in rio i thought that course was set up perfectly i don't think it was built for scores course between men and women i just think they got the t's in the right spots and yeah there were a, i mean the second hole was i remember so we had a forward the second day there were bunch of, you know, the 13 was a long iron, uh, 11 was a middle iron, 12 was a long iron, 13 was a long iron. There was a great finish. So there was a really good mix of long and short irons. I, you know, I thought Gil did an amazing job building that golf course. And the other, My other point has always been that if we want the scores to look kind of even, why don't the women run 97 metres? I mean, no one expects the women to run faster than men or even close to as high as the men jump or as long as they jump or throw a shot put as far or, you know, I don't see why there's any great stigma in women not shooting the same scores as the men because no one expects them to run as fast. You've accidentally- yeah, but,
2: we, but we've never moved the finish line. We've never, it's never been – it's always been 100 metres, whereas in golf, the, the length is constantly changed every week and it's a choice to be made. It's not like it's always been 100 metres. So I don't know that that's necessarily a fair comparison. Yeah,
3: but I think you diminish the skills of the, the player, like Nellie Corder being a great example, by playing a course that doesn't show off her best golf. But it lets Aditi Ashok play well, which is, a, which is, for, you know, for growing the game in India is amazing. But that course at that length, and I was oh, there, completely. so it's not fair, doesn't show off Nellie's, Nellie Corder's golf at her best. Because her best golf would be on a 7,200 yard course where she'd shoot eight under and win by five and just yeah be utterly brilliant. Shooting, yeah. driving four irons to the par fours and just playing like Ben Hogan.
0: Logue. What's well, not, the value in this score comparison? Do we place too much or too little importance on it? Should I suspect, in a golf lens, we think well, it shouldn't really. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, well, you just watch two different golf tournaments and they'll both be interesting for different reasons. But does it matter, particularly at an event like the Olympics? Well, I think the
1: first thing is that I think we assume non golfers understand what the scores mean. And I, I know from my work, you know, trying to Sorry? do software <laughs> development in golf. I'm constantly educating software developers on all the different scoring systems in golf. And I I can tell you, they wouldn't have a clue what the difference between minus 10 and minus 20 is. Isn't the minus 20 worse? That's the first challenge you've got to overcome. Um, And I commented last podcast on how easy it is with every other Olympic sport to know what's at stake within 30 seconds or so of watching it. Like that bloke threw the javelin further than the other bloke and you know it's well, you know that's clearly better and it only takes 30 seconds or so to understand what's going on whereas I, and i i'm interested in the the golf the non-golfer experience because i think we can assume that you know maybe i don't know 90% of the audience that initially turned on the golf at tokyo would have been a non-golf audience but i wonder after you know 30 seconds Second. a minute 5 minutes how many of those remain whereas and I imagine goal and this is despite the incredible commentary, Ali, but, uh, the, <laughs> um, but I, I imagine the numbers for every other sport would perform a little bit better because you can just you get what's going on. You can see the personalities of the participants a lot clearer with the way they do the camera work and just look at something as obscure as skating and just how engaging that was um, I, I feel like golf is probably the worst performing sport because of what it is and how inscrutable it is for that scenario of like, okay, we've got we've got an audience here. Now let's keep them. I, I imagine golf drops off pretty quickly. Checkers no, you, that that's alley? one
2: of the funny things though. It actually, I want to say it was the seventh most popular sport in Rio from the broadcast. Really? And it averaged 10 million viewers a day on the BBC alone. Wow. Granted, uh, Justin Rose was in it, but I, I got some of the numbers while I was there because I was quite surprised and I thought the same thing. I just didn't think that we'd be able to hold the audience, which was part of what we wanted to, like Tony and I had talked about what we wanted to do for the week and how we wanted to handle it and we wanted it to be relaxed and we wanted it to be fun to listen to and to try and bring the stories of the players in more and how they got into the game and that was a real goal. Like I did, so m- I did 20 hours of research on the players on how they started golf because that's what I wanted that was the message that I wanted to get out, that like, people with very little resources could start playing. And, and that was kind of the MO. But like, a lot of my friends that have never watched golf, they're like, we feel like you're sitting on the couch with us watching the golf. And that's kind of what we wanted to create. So it's kind of, it's slightly different in that regard. Like the, even the way that we approached the broadcast was quite different.
0: Is are been uh, capable of fun, Ellie? <laughs> Tony Johnson's ever had fun in his life. Johnson, miserable, <laughs> horrible little man. Now, no.
2: oh, he's he's the I, butt I of can't. the jokes, though. That's how he takes it. So, this is that's why he's he's such a delight to work with. I have to say, he he and I really stuck together and um and had each other's backs, which was great.
0: Well, nine hours a day. Four days in a row, two weeks in a row, <laughs> starting at 2.30 and 3 in the like morning. No, yeah, you kind of need an ally in I that guess
3: situation lucky you flanking
0: go nuts. It's, it's checkers down and chess, though, isn't it, Ali? One of the great appeals of golf, for somebody like me who's got no great interest in almost any other sport, that's why golf appeals to me. It's not crash, bang, wallop, and then it's over. The playing field is enormous for television purposes. The playing field is enormous. I mean, you go to the javelin, the, the two blokes are standing next to each other. It's really not a – it's like football. Football is very easy to cover on television because it's on a rectangle, or rugby league is, and you go up one field and you go down the field. So golf is a harder immediate sell, isn't it? And that, More that- officials die in javelin than any other sport
1: too, which adds a <laughs> bit of interest. Right. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it is. Really? Surprising number die.
0: Do they not call for <laughs> – is that there's no shout of four in javelin? Is it wouldn't you think they, they run be.
1: towards the javelin as it's in the air? It's not
2: that's a death wish, <laughs>
1: okay? But rabbit hole. I wasn't expecting to go down there, yeah. Very different defensing, which is incredibly disappointing compared to what you think it should be yeah, and what so it actually is.
0: Safe aren't they with all those big suits? And give them whipping sword, around their floppy yeah, little no, sabers like right, it. no protection, give them proper swords and let them go at it with yeah. nothing, nothing to protect them, Clates. Ooh, that is a cheap shot. <laughs> oh, it's worth <laughs> it. It does raise an interesting point, though, Ali, and that is that whole notion of personality from the players. It's a difficult one for golf and always has been, hasn't it? The game demands trying to keep on an even keel. Television demands something that people can attach themselves to and go and really want to sort of cheer for this person. So it's a, golf's an awkward sport for television at the best of times, and it just ramps up an extra mile or two, doesn't it? When, you, when you're doing it for the Olympics, when, when in the back of your mind you think this is for a non-golf audience.
2: Well, I think that's the thing. Like I I remember I went to the Rip Curl Pro maybe five or six years ago and didn't really have a favourite surfer. I just went down there for the day and then someone told me that Steph Gilmore plays golf and plays the guitar, two things that I love doing. And... I watched her results for the rest of the year. I've watched them ever since that moment. I've followed her and I really took that on board in terms of our commentary because it's they all play golf. So why should I barrack for one over the other, especially if someone from your country is not in contention at the Olympics? So I, I think that just finding something that resonates. Um, and I'm so happy that... What happened with Aditi? Did because I said to Annie, one of the rules officials tonight. She came over and she said when we were talking about the length of the course, and it depends each week. Each each rules official has a, a style of setup, and it changes quite drastically between them sometimes. And uh, and so we we're having this quite a candid conversation about it. And I said, I I know that you know the course got shortened. It was mainly on two holes a hundred, you know, it was 200 yards shorter the second day than it was the first, but literally 95 yards of that was on the sixth alone. And then one par five was made made reachable. And I said, I, I know that it played slightly shorter, but, and, but Aditi, like Clay said, like she wouldn't have competed if it was at the original length, but I'm so happy she did because that is going to make a massive difference in India. That's just happenstance though. That's just how it came about. But uh, that's one story that you know, that popped up in the Olympics, I think will actually make a really big difference.
0: It's the big story of the Olympics, isn't it, in reality, Ali? Mm. I think we all kind of – nobody was surprised Nelly caught a one uh, and it was lovely to see one of the Japanese players being in there and getting the silver medal, but the real story of the Olympics was in fact the girl that finished fourth because the impact of that potentially could be enormous uh, and, and you only had to read. My scepticism about non-golfers watching golf was well and truly cured in terms of India by just seeing what the Twitter feeds were saying about who was watching People getting up in the middle of the night in India to watch the golf and to watch Aditi knowing nothing about the game. So that's very powerful stuff. You can't you can't manipulate that, and you wouldn't want to. But what a performance from her, and what a player she really is. In fact,
2: yeah, she's uh, she beat the field by twelve shots. I think it was on the greens in the air uh, after the final round. It's like 12, 12 shots uh, is amazing, and she's such a cool unit as well. Like I walked with them in the girl. practice round. Uh, her mum's like her mum's a DJ, and like if if you sit down with them they get mad if they if you don't let them buy you a beer like genuinely they're those kind of people like they're really cool yeah. but she so she was talking to me that day about rio about how many followers she gained in from the girl the girl that was leading the olympics that's what she was known as yeah. not for her 3 LET wins and rookie of the year etc cetera, etc cetera. but she was known by that and so i looked at her followers throughout the week and she had less than 20,000 about midway through day one and now she's up to about fifty seven thousand in six days later. She's got messages from the president of you know of India and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um yeah, great experience for her. But uh yeah, it's neither here nor there in terms of the setup
0: stepping back from golf you one wonders whether the most important thing for India's immediate future is to get fall in love with golf but that's a whole different discussion
2: yeah well that's it we can only handle one thing at a time (laughs) the game's place
0: in the world what sort of feedback did you get Ali and what's your sense of I mean it's too big a question for any one person to ponder and there's probably no right or wrong answer but what's your sense of what the Olympics actually does do for golf beyond just golf we argue about it internally but what does it do do you think what's your sense of
2: I think when you go, I don't think that anyone that has has gone, and you know, I'd love to hear Klaits's take on it. I don't think anyone would ever give up that experience easily, if, if asked. It's kind of, you know, I was talking about it earlier. I think it's 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 like reading your favorite book for the first time. Like it's something that you can only experience once, and you take it all in. And the thing for me is that that golfers, it's not everything based on the Olympics their lives aren't based on the Olympics there's they've got a week you know an event the week after or before they've got this is sandwiched between the majors for the women so in terms of the perspective we, we just haven't seen any of the players that are playing it yet haven't grown up with the dream of playing the Olympics so it's not going to bet in for another probably another five years yeah, and then right we'll see it take off.
0: There's a sort of a generational thing happening there. And of course, as golf does, there was events the week of the Olympics. If you didn't want to watch the mm-hmm. Olympics, if you were anti Olympics, there was other golf to watch. So, <laughs> like the whole game's necessarily embraced it and said, let's put the whole two weeks over to this. Off the Olympics and quickly, Ali, we're going to let you go soon because you do need some sleep. You're now in Scotland. We've, of course, got the Scottish Women's Open this week and we've got the Women's British Open next week, an exciting couple of weeks. Uh, what are you looking forward to? Brand new golf course, been open for a year where they're playing the Scottish Open this week.
2: I can't wait to go. So apparently, everyone's talking about the golf course. It's it's still, yeah. So I think it's technically two two years old from construction um, point of view. So Dunbarney Links, and it's down in Leven, like kind of down near the coast of Fife, down on the similar like south southwest of St Andrews, uh, north of Edinburgh, and it it looks unbelievable. Apparently, there's some bits that still look young that it hasn't quite grown into itself yet but the players are raving about it so hopefully it'll be um one of those things that they fall in love with
0: and, of course, the Women's British Open has rightfully taken its place amongst one of the most important tournaments in the world, and they take it to good golf course. Now, Canoosti coming up in two weeks' time, that will be. Everyone's looking forward to it now, of course, all the players, but they'll get to Canoosti and realise you don't look forward to playing Canoosti. It is a <laughs> it's a beast of a golf course. <laughs> the finish there yeah. is, is just uh, shocking. Ali, been great to catch up. Congratulations on some fabulous work. You and Johnston in particular did a great work. I won't ask you. <laughs> Lots of us weren't impressed I'm with so the third commentator. I'm so glad that you didn't, you didn't
2: get me to be politically correct with but, my with my answer on that front but last week's podcast was a very entertaining listen towards the end i have to say <laughs> and it and, went, it and it wasn't particularly off face yeah there you
0: go you and johnson did a fabulous job we all appreciate it you'll no doubt be back for france in 2024 i think it's on but great of you to take some time today and enjoy the next couple of weeks i look forward to hearing your voice appreciate pleasure it
2: pleasure guys cheers yeah. thanks a
0: bunch thanks. No, thanks, thank you, well, there you go from somebody who was actually on the ground as opposed to us who just sit outside and poke fun like uh like uh, ordinary people. What was your take on all that, Clates? What do you reckon?
3: Uh,
0: was the biggest problem with the Olympic golf in many ways not the Kasumi Country Club, the course itself?
3: No, I think it's probably a I mean, I mean, having never seen either, I, my assumption is that Tokyo Golf Club right next door is a better golf course, but they wouldn't go there because they didn't have any women members. And Kasumi Kaseki had to be persuaded to have some women members so they could go there. So, no, I think it was a pretty representative example of Japanese golf. It's unique in world golf in terms of their courses are much different.
0: What do you know about this Dunbarney Lynx? You would have played with Clive Clark on the European
3: tour. No, he was gone before I started, but he was commentating more. He was uh, finished third. Clive Clark was third in the open in 1968 behind Nicholson Player. He was a good player. There you go. And then came and got lessons from Norman Von Neider who was an absolute legend and one of the best bucks I've ever met in golf, but he wasn't a great teacher in fairness.
0: He could have taught you about bunker play 50 years ago. Well, well,
3: he he tried to teach John Kelly and I bunker play and we just said, Norman, you just get in the bunker and hit shots and we'll just watch. (laughs) And that's what we did. But um, yeah, it's a new link. So I assume it's, Pretty good.
0: It know, looks, the, the photos look good and visual, but apparently it's completely man-made. The, the land was essentially flat from what I can understand and they've created everything that's on the land.
3: Which oh. was what King's Barns was and, yeah. Castle and Castle Course yeah. you know, and the, and the Fairmont Resort where they played the Scottish Hero Open or whatever it was last week. Uh, they're all kind of man-made links in paddocks and mm. to a greater or lesser degree they've done a pretty amazing job in making them look somewhat natural.
0: I've read a few of the views, Logue. I'm sure you have too about Dumbarney Wings. I'm interested because it's such a new golf course and here we've got the best women players in the world. are about to, We're about to see what happens when top flight professional golf meets resort golf, really, aren't we, by the sea?
1: Yeah, I've, I haven't read a lot about it, to be honest, but what I'll be looking at the the shaping and, and that sort of thing because I think you can always tell – this is one of the things I always that strikes me about the Renaissance Club where they had been playing is that – You you can tell those slopes, they look beautiful. It's actually a beautiful looking golf course, but you can tell those slopes aren't natural because they're just a little bit too perfect. All the gradients are spot on. There's nothing really too extreme, although there's extreme things, but they're they're extreme within acceptable gradients. And and some of that might have been smoothed out of the land, but uh, a lot of it is left there just up the road at, Muirfield and North Berwick, they still have really extreme gradients that look weird and quirky and out of place. And uh, that, that's what I'll be looking at is I, I think it's very hard to pull that off. Hmm. Making something look
0: natural yes. is well, you wouldn't read the, quote. the hardest thing. I'm sure, like, you'd probably tell us who wrote it and give us the whole context. But I remember reading the quote some years ago about you could invest all of the world's money and all of the world's greatest minds into trying to recreate a rock. And it doesn't matter what you do and how good it is, when you pick up a rock and you pick up that you know straight away. That's not – you can never actually recreate nature no matter how hard you try. And this must be a constant challenge of being a course architect, clients.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit, you know, to invoke Seven Mile Beach, yeah. When you see sand dunes in the natural format, you look at stuff and go, you could never build that. No. There's so much stuff at Seven Mile Beach that's there that it would be almost impossible to replicate it.
0: Well, you you couldn't, in in architectural terms in golf terms, you'd be a very brave person who would build the 17th at St Andrews in the modern world, wouldn't it, at the old course?
3: Well, we're talking about resort golf. If they built St Andrews now, would people class that as a resort course? Big hotel on the side?
0: Uh Would they play it? What would what would be the take? I asked Tom Doak this about Augusta National, if it hadn't hosted the Masters and they decided to play a tournament there next year, what would the
3: take be on Augusta National? I think the players would think it was ridiculous. It's
0: exactly what he said. There'd be a mm-hmm. revolt. Greens are too yeah, severe. I think they
3: would hate. They would hate yeah. those. They would. They would hate those greens. Hate them. I, you know, having built, you know, the 4th green, at the lakes, and a few other controversial greens amongst a lot of very tame ones, I know that if you built. The fifth green or the sixth green, which is pretty much like the seventh grain at the lakes. Um, the 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 fourteenth green, the fifteenth green, the sixteenth green, and probably the seventeenth green, members would just think they were completely ridiculous other greens are a joke. The buried elephants under them, you can't put them, they're ridiculous.
0: What's that about, like We attach stuff to stuff, don't we? I think I think Doken are right. If you if, if Augusta National had just been known as a golf club, and then they hosted a bit like Trinity Forest, and they hosted a tournament next year for the first time. I think the pros would revolved. It'd be the the classic. I'll oh, put your coin in the slot and go for a ride on the greens. It's a it's a novelty. What do you yeah,
1: mean? yeah, for sure. Like, uh, and to me, I mean, just getting back to Kasumi Gusecki, it, it that's I said last week. It's a golf course shaped golf course. Like yeah. it, it just it looks like a golf course. Look like what a child would render if you are a child. Did you to hear
0: Logue, that. last week? Right. so he opened with, "If a child was to draw a dog, it'd be shaped like a dog." And I thought, "Oh, this is buckle up! This is going to be great!" And it <laughs> yeah. was. It turned out exactly that. But there's some breeds course, of dog right.
1: that look like a, they're dog shaped yeah, dogs. Yeah, absolutely, I think right. that's a it's a golf course shaped golf course. But it, it, to me, it also speaks perfectly to the the criticism or the the request you hear from a lot of golfers. It's like, oh, okay, what do we need to do to make our golf course better? And uh, <laughs> I think I had this conversation with Clates about my home course, but um everybody if you ask everybody if you put a poll out there everyone's just going to say oh we want the sand to be consistent and the yeah. greens to be quite fast yeah and that's what you got at kasumigaseki and so that's the that's the heights that you'll saw to i think if that's your priority is yeah. consistent sand and flat greens and and like good good fast greens that's that's what you get is kasumigaseki and it's pretty
0: banal like and it's, it's- there's nothing wrong with it but it's not great is it
1: Close. Well,
3: in fairness, the, in, in fairness to the golf course, it doesn't look anything like it looked when Alison did it. I think Alison yeah. did it in, in 93. It looked incredible. It's been rounded off and cleaned up. And, and, the, and the Japanese course, in my experience, is a huge, huge emphasis on conditioning and being pretty and just they, they've all got that, that look to them. And the greens are the, you know, the limited – Man, I've played there. The greens are the best greens I've ever putted on in the world. They're incredible greens to putt on, usually. And this is a generalisation, but a short par four is the same as a long par four; it's just shorter. They don't build holes like the third at Kingston Heath or the fifteenth of Victoria or mm-hmm. you know the fourth at late, or the fourth at Bamburgh or Jones or whatever. All, all the Australia's the home of the great. Three hundred yard par four, but they moved, when they moved the tees up on the sixth hole last week at Kazumi Kaseki, it just became a long par three. They just all drove it on the green.
1: Mm. Yeah. Same with seventeen, it looked like uh, just a yeah. very short par four. Like there's yeah. there was a fairway bunker back there, which was not in play, yeah, and well, the way the green was protected looked like how you'd protect a shortish par four. It wasn't, yeah, it didn't seem
0: built for, for that.
3: It's a it's a bit. You would go to a club in Japan and order a ham and cheese sandwich and you couldn't get that. You could get a ham sandwich and you could get a cheese sandwich. <laughs> I read this during the week. This is bizarre. But you couldn't get a ham and cheese sandwich. And and their par fours are a little bit the same. You know, there's not much quirk or um, I don't want to say imagination, but, you know, they they just don't. They don't do an
0: orthodoxy, qu- yeah, unusual, yeah. different yeah. standout. It's a, it's not so much. ironic you say that, Clayton. In 97, when I went to Scotland and the UK with BJ, the editor of Golf Australia Magazine, we did a yeah. big trip, 35 days, whatever it was, you could not, we lined up at, at the old course at 4.30 in the morning. There was a cafe across the road that opened at six. There's yeah. 400 people waiting on the first tee. You couldn't buy a takeaway coffee. I went in there and said, oh, could I get a coffee? He said, yeah, yeah, take a seat. I said, I don't want a takeaway. So said, oh, we don't do takeaway. So mate, There's 400 people across the road there. Every single one of them give you 10 quid for a coffee right now if you yeah. just do takeaway. So, no, we don't do yeah.
3: takeaway.
0: So, you can have a ham sandwich, you can have a cheese sandwich, yeah, but you I can't have, 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 have
3: a ham and cheese, cheese sandwich. sandwich.
0: Just one of the most bizarre things.
3: And, I and, I, and, again, I haven't played enough golf in Japan, but talking to Tommy Watson, who knows more about golf in Japan than any Australian, he'll tell you the old courses are brilliant. Yeah. You know, the, the, the old courses that the English did back in the 20s were brilliant.
0: Well, the foundation of the game it had the right yeah. roots, didn't it? The right people went there and built golf courses as the nation was falling in love with golf. So it was a great base to work from. It, uh, uh, it's kind of changed ever since. It's, it, it always raises what I think is one of the most interesting notions about golf. And I used to get this at my old home club there at Mangrove Mount. You'd say to the members, yeah, what's the best hole on the golf course? And to a person, they'd say the second. The second was just a brutally difficult path
3: yeah, forward. The hardest yeah.
0: Downhill and hit it across the water, and everybody had made a 13 there at some point. Blah, blah, blah. What's your favourite hole on the course on the fourth? Now, this 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 complete inability to, to distinguish between best best equals hard. Where does this come from? Like, and it, it it remains in golf to this day. Ask me what the best is; they always name the hardest. It's got to be the hardest. And I think the best should be what's the most interesting. That's the challenge, I think, for those of us interested in course architecture to make that case to golfers. Yeah, bloody bloody golfers! Um- Honestly, <laughs> if it wasn't for golfers, the game'd be so much easier.
1: <laughs> it's it's. It is interesting. I think the the measure that people use as well is it's hard, but it's also what does it demand of me? And the, their answer to that question is often not a lot of deep thought. It's like, oh, there's this obvious challenge, like I've got to make this carry or I've got to uh, fade it around this tree on the dogleg corner or something like that. The people, I think, to actually think a lot less deeply about it than we imagine they're they're just they they look at a hole and if they see an obvious challenge they like it they they really respond to that and uh it, it's the giving them too many choices I think a lot of the time that's that can be a little less engaging um so it it's again yeah bloody bloody golfers uh, <laughs> What's well, well,
3: what's like the, it's like the seventh hole at in which you know well which is would be a beautiful hole if they filled all the extraneous fairway bunkers in and the members mm. would say to a man, well, if you fill those bunkers in, it'll be too easy. And you say, well, why don't you make it a par four? Oh, it'll be too hard then.
1: <laughs> well, It's a perfect length for a par four and it's, it's the way a those drive, bunkers are positioned, it really seems like a par four. But, yeah, um, you know,
3: it's, a, it's a driver seven iron for mm. anyone who can really hit the ball. So it, it's not even a long par four really. It's a long par four for me and you but, but there's just – and the hole's ruined by – as the 10th hole is there, by someone building fairway bunkers where there's not enough room for them uh, uh, and, and the land is beautifully shaped it hypocrisy. doesn't need bunkers, yeah. whereas you go to Melbourne where the land's utterly boring mostly on the sand belt and they had to build bunkers to make the game interesting. But Pimble's got such interesting land, it didn't need all that extra stuff. But somebody looked, yeah, and just clutters things up. You know, sort yeah, pictures up. of. Yeah. So if George right. Thomas had, so if George Thomas had gone to Pinball, he would have built an amazing golf course there. But Riviera, be, yeah.
1: I mean, it's more interesting land than Riviera in some ways. Just yeah. it's smaller, but it, mm. it has a, certainly a lot more elevation change. That's um, and so a, what, you
0: know, very comparable to Sydney. What role do you reckon that plays, Clates, in, in golf as we know it is where people grow up and the sort of golf they're exposed to. I've, the first time I kind of played golf outside of Sydney was when we went to the UK, and it was just so wildly different. It would have been quite easy to find it confronting go, oh, this doesn't look like golf. Golf looks like pinball, not the old course. It has a real impact, doesn't it, where you sort of grow up and learn your golf, and, and what other people tell you is good. Growing up in Sydney, people tell you, oh, the really good golf courses in Sydney are Concord and the Australian. Uh, and yeah, you know, Kalara, these kind of prestigious
3: yeah, Mike clubs. Mike Clayton wrecked the lakes, and Bonnie Doon's ridiculous. We know, we know that you wrecked the lakes and Bonny yeah. Clayton. Um, but I mean, the penny might drop in Sydney when people think Royal Sydney's a good golf course, and it's not, a, and it is a decent golf course. But it's not when a bad Gil- golf course, let's no. But when Gil Hands redoes it, and people go there and go, "Wow, this is a lot better than it was." Will they? Because it will be a lot better. Yeah, of course they will, because he'll do it. Yeah, I better. think that, that's that
1: will yeah. be really yeah. self-evident. Yeah. It'll
3: be, that, that will be unbelievably obvious how much better that golf course is once he redoes it. But people in Sydney think Royal Sydney is a good course, and it's kind of, yeah, it's, in terms of world terms, it's an average golf course, really. Yeah.
0: We, we conflate clubs and prestige and other stuff with courses, don't we? No. Oh, that, that happens a lot. Yeah.
1: Well, Royal Sydney's got beautiful yeah. greens and consistent sand.
0: Um, it's hard to get into <laughs> people it's are looking for. It's, a, oh. it's, a, it's all sort of fancy and, and whatnot. Is the outlook for that bleak, well, well, we obviously think we're right of the things that we think make golf interesting and whatnot. Yeah. And I suspect we're probably in the minority and maybe a growing minority. What's the outlook for that, do you reckon, in 20 years' I,
1: time? Yeah, I think if you zoom back and look at the, the sort of the arc of how all this evolved, we're we're emerging from a period where we did a lot of things with golf course construction because we could. You know, the equipment existed and the technology that we've got for agronomy and and the way we can, you know, the places that we can grow grass these days. And we, we did a lot of things because we could. Um, and that's an interesting experiment. You have to sort of push the limits of that. I think we've been down that road now and you'll naturally see a little bit of a bounce back where you you start grassing less of the golf course and you start moving a little less land and you know be, we'll see that evolve probably at you know seven mile beach with yeah. um, you know it's going to have fescues and you know, you know that'll be fascinating to see but I, I think and then water is going to become much more of a consideration in future decades be, so we won't be able to push the limits quite as much as we can with the tools that we've had because it's going it's going to seem incredibly wasteful and um. We'll, uh, we'll have to draw back. but And what, what we might see is a little less of the homogenization of golf courses, which I think is a, a, the ultimate expression of how Kasumi Gaseki is presented. It just looks like this homogenous golf course-shaped golf course and will have a little bit more natural playing fields. And it's interesting, that contrast at the Olympics, like these Olympic sports like archery and javelin and discus and hammer throw and everything – probably had origins in much more wild environments but they've all been you know over the years they've all been refined into you know very standardized playing arenas and you know archery yeah they just go and shoot at the target and then walk up and pick the arrows out and walk back where wouldn't be wouldn't that be far more interesting if they were going cross country and shooting stuff you know
0: like archery (laughs) architecture is this what you do i actually think you're right well, what if about, there's a whole subculture of archers who who are anti about, the Olympics and the, the sterilized version of the. Sport exactly. It's sterilized. I mean, imagine pole vault across country. Like. <laughs> well, isn't there? There's that amazing, I saw this just again last week, that amazing river crossing um, sort of pole vault style jump they do. It's a competition. I think it's in Ireland or England, in the UK somewhere. You sort of take this run up and you sort of jam the pole into the middle of the creek and it flings you across over the top and you land on the other side. Quite a staggering sort of idea. Like,
1: see a- that as an Olympic sport, I mean, you know, going side hill, uphill, uh, have different challenges with the run up. It'll be, it'll be interesting stuff. And all the sports at the Olympics, you know, I wonder after that conversation with Ali whether golf is actually more engaging because of the variety of the playing fields that we're on, as opposed to these other sports where it's all been homogenised to such an extent that you've, everything's standardised, all for the sake of the ultimate measurement of if this javelin thrower puts it one centimetre past the other one, we know we've taken all other factors out of play and we know that that's the best javelin thrower. So I I think it would be a shame if golf went down that path because the varied playing fields that golf goes across is...
0: Is the attraction of the sport. That's right. That's what, what it's about, isn't it? Adrian's talked about homogenised golf courses there, Clades, and I think we think about the 80s and 90s and resort golf courses and dog-shaped golf courses like mm. the Sumigaseki Country Club courses that look like golf courses. Aren't we on this side of the discussion equally guilty in some ways of a homogenization of this wild look and blowout bunkers and what we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years that we kind of view the core and Crenshaw work and Hands and Doak and yourselves at, uh, you know um C D P and you, at your time with Ogilvy and, and Cocking, are we not guilty of something something somewhat similar?
3: What of guilty of building good golf? I think you've um, saying. We've yeah, discussed I, this before. I so do, Derek
0: Duncan makes the point quite often.
3: Yeah. You know, I,
0: what's next?
3: I, I do and I think you know Corin Crenshaw's have been the best at it the last forty years and you know their work, you could argue their work looks similar ish, but so did Alistair McKenzie's in many cases. And I think they've done built some amazing golf courses. I think people will look back in 100 years and look at all their courses and go, wow, they're amazing. Whereas I don't think people are going to look back in 100 years. and Well, I think people are looking back in 50 years. And Well, Gil just read Oakland Hills. Lucas was there the other day. Lucas Michelle was there the other day. And he said that they've just done an incredible job tearing down all the stuff that Trent Jones did to Ross's work in for the 1951 US Open. And he said, "It's just incredible what he's done. He's, you know, he's put the thing back. It's, it's brilliant." So I think this this era of architecture will be looked on pretty kindly in years to come. But I think you're right. You can, you know, we, everyone fell into the let's do these really cool jaggedy looking bunkers because that's what George Thomas drew in his book in 1930, and Tom Simpson, yeah. and, and I think we've partly moved on from that. But I mean, he's, the biggest question for golf in Australia in terms of where it's going to go is as soon as they built the sand belt. The depression came, and the war came, and golf in Sydney too, probably. And then we had the influence of committees, and largely that was really bad. Committees made a lot of horrible decisions on golf courses that, you know, I think we had a bit to do with. Certainly, at a place like Victoria, repairing all the damage that the committee had done in fifty years, filling bunkers in and planting trees, and that happened all over the country. So, so the future of how golf. Manages itself in the next 50 years in Australia is entirely dependent on how the committee system works and whether you get decent people on committees who know what they're doing or you kind of carry on down the path that Mackenzie wrote about where you turn people over every three years and they just keep making the same mistakes
0: you raise something that's really a really interesting sort of point we hear this term the second golden age thrown about sometimes and we've had a we've had some fabulous golf courses built in the last 25 30 years starting with sand hills there's a real sort of renaissance happened mm. with all of that but will we, in fact, if we zoom out as Logue likes to say 50 years, might we actually look back on this period as the period of the Great Restoration where some of the world's great golf courses and even some of the world's not-so-great golf courses were made better golf courses? The financial crisis of 2008 kind of saw a stop to a lot of new construction. We have seen a lot of golf courses uh, renovated and restored. Will this perhaps be the period that's looked back on as when golf sort of got some of its sensibilities back?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, using me as an example, or us, you know, I think we did an incredible job of Victoria. That was a, okay. you know, that was a, it was a great golf course in 1930, and by 1975, it, it wasn't ruined. It was still a good course, but it, so much of the character of that place had, it had, it had been changed, and I would argue a lot of it had gone uh, through probably a manager inspired influence as much as the committee but we walked into our first meeting at victoria with the old black and white photo and said put this back and it took 25 years that's a miles better golf course than it was in 1995 when we started there and that's happened all over the world i mean all over the world that's happened and to be people when i was a kid to be a top 10 course in australia was a big deal and it still is but the 10th best course in Australia in 1980 would, would, wouldn't be in the top 25 now, wouldn't even be close because we've built some good new courses and we've restored a bunch of old ones and made them a lot better than they were. And Royal Sydney will go from, you know, it's probably the 45th best course in Australia now and it will go into the top 15 because that's where it should be because that's how good that land is. It just needs someone to put a really good golf course on it.
0: Yeah, indeed. We've talked about this before, Like this notion that, you know, in public golf in particular, assets that are sort of being lost. There's no shortage of golf to fix, is there? If, if golf had an attitude of let's just forget about new builds for a while, let's take all of the assets, we've got and make them better, what could we create? It would be quite remarkable, wouldn't
1: it? Yeah, well, as, you know, as excited as I am for Seven Mile Beach and Arm um, End, those, those are really interesting projects. Um, You've you got to wonder, again, golf – you know, having some scrutiny looked at by non-golfers uh, coveting the land that golf's on, um, you know, do we have a responsibility just to use that land better?
0: Um, Are we better served by making Lane Cove a better golf course than building seven-mile beach? It's a false equivalence, of course, but that's the sort of broad question, isn't it? Yeah,
3: well, I'm a, well the work at Sandringham, which was a really average public golf course right over the road from North Melbourne, it's now arguably got the best set of greens on the sand belt. Better than Royal Melbourne. Not, not. Really? I'm not, and I'm not talking about the the surface. Not no, about no, the, the design. The architecture, the design. It's, it's an amazing set of greens. It's, it's brilliant, and it's a, you know, it's a five thousand, know, plus meter golf course. Perfect for the people who play it, and, and it's brilliant and great fun. And re, and it was really important to make to turn a really average public golf course into something that's really good. And, and Oatley's
1: next, maybe Oatley, Cheltenham.
3: Well, I think you <laughs>
1: get them sorted out.
3: Well, you can make Cheltenham a brilliant six-hole course. That could be an amazing six-hole course. And if when will someone we see
0: said, it, Clades? When will, we, when will we see somebody with the the courage to do a six or 12-hole golf course that is really, really good and makes yeah. people understand, do you know what? This is so much better oh, than when it yeah, was 18. I
3: don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but when someone says to me, let's go and play golf, I'm praying they say, let's go and play nine holes. <laughs> I'm so worn out with playing 18-hole golf. I, 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 play on, I play 18 holes on Saturday morning with my mates every, and I in, really enjoy it, but I'd much rather play nine and just go and have a nice breakfast or lunch in the clubhouse. And 18 holes kind of, that doesn't wear me out. I'm just, nine holes is enough. You've done and a to, fair
0: bit of it in fairness, Clay. It's probably more than most people walking the
3: planet. You've played yeah,
0: more 18-hole lots of golf than most.
3: <laughs> but there's this obsession that, Pimble would be a much better golf course if it was 15 holes it would, because that's how much room they've got. And there's so much golf in Sydney. Kallara is another example where they've jammed 18 holes onto a bit of land that's got room for 15. How much better would golf have been at Pemball and Kallara and you know, I'm, I'm Avondale, I'm, I've walked Avondale, I've never played it, If they'd, Eleonora, if they'd just built 15 holes or 16 holes and not been stuck with this convention, we've got to make 18 holes here. And the yeah. course I grew up at, at Easton, which, was, which eventually sold up for $100 million and moved 35 minutes away. But, you know, Easton was a much better golf course than people thought it was. I knew how to make that a fantastic 12-hole golf course. It could have been a brilliant 12-hole golf course. They could have sold out the holes out the back where we lived, a house on the back of the 8th tee, for $10 million bucks. They could have rebuilt what was left and made an amazing 12 hole golf course. And yet, if he'd gone to a vote of the members, wouldn't have got one vote. Not one. Oh, God, no. Not a, not a one. single one. But it would have been brilliant. It would have been an amazing 12 hole golf course so because it was question, a great piece of land.
0: So then the question becomes Logue, like, is it not going to be, in reality, a public facility that's going to show the way here? Who's the first council? And it might not be an amicable decision. It may be that the Moore Park ongoing war over Moore Park ends up being some sort of compromise where it ends up being not a nine or 18-hole course, but maybe a 12 or a 14-hole golf course and having to give up some of its land. If we were to look at that as an opportunity to do something worthwhile, could that be an, a net positive? Well, you and I for- talked about if I If I was campaigning for more park
1: they- They'd uh, they'd be moving they holes they, left, right, okay. and center. I'd just be giving There stuff wouldn't
0: even be a driving range left it's there like that. You've got to keep me away from
1: negotiation. Yeah. <laughs> um I, I, no, I think Moorpark's completely the wrong place to I do too, to probably. try and do that at. Well, but okay, what about you No, got camera, camera, no, camera no, would well, yeah, be great six holes? Um, the uh, funny Clayton saying 15 holes at Pimble. Rod, when I, I was walking around Pimble with Clayton, I said, oh, what do you think he said? oh, there's 12 good holes here. <laughs> said, now it's 15. I said, I said, oh, yeah, it's gone up to 15. He goes, I said, oh, so 12 good holes and six bad holes. He goes, no, no,
0: just 12 good just holes. <laughs> <About> 12 <laughs> holes. But it's gone to 15, yeah. It is confronting uh, though, isn't it? The, no, the, we are the place, incredibly rusted on to 9 and 18. Yeah.
1: yeah, Well, that's right. But the place to do it is somewhere like a Chatswood or somewhere yeah. where it's really under pressure from, but, the, you know, you see it where the club holds on by the very last... Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whatever hope that they've got to stick to 18 holes till the bitter, bitter end, even if it means, uh, you know, 18 very average holes, nothing at Chatswood. Um, you know, you, it just, there isn't the, the amount of land there to, for 18 great holes. So,
3: so, so uh, what's Ch- so Chatswood's a doke one or a doke two? Uh, yeah. We
0: live here, we live up here, Clayton. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to work in this community. Well, the, they go, well, the they interesting go...
1: thing is they've come into a bit of money because yeah, of uh, money. um They've got a uh, some sort of uh, old, old, a reti- old it's a reti- retirement home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 struggling for the, the name, yeah, uh, and uh, th- so they've come into a bunch of money, and it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. I think the debate is still ongoing of whether they'll go to twelve holes or try and make it eighteen holes. But there's a golf course that's. Closest to it. huge population there around Chatswood and St. Leonards. And um, you might even get back into Golf Rod, but it's not far from you. Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting to see that, you know, lunchtime golf would be an option there if there were shorter forms to play.
0: Interesting. There's a business case, though, isn't there, Clates? Is the reality not that if you build a 12 hole course, it's most likely to be a failure? Your market is existing
3: golfers. You're not know, going to, unless you're tired. no, No, no. Well, is there not a business case for that? No, well, when I argued for at Sandringham for a 12-hole course and a six-hole par three course, and that got smashed, uh, which was fine. Uh, more than 50% of the golf, like 51 or two or three percent of the golf at Sandringham, was nine holes. I think there's a great business case for a 12-hole golf course. Great business case for a great nine-hole golf course. I think they'd kill it. Look at Boogle Run. I mean, I haven't played it yet, but I walked it when they were building it. 12-hole course. It's people. People love playing golf around there. You can play in. It's short. You can play it in an hour and 10 minutes. It's, it's, okay, I mean, t- t- take, take away oh, Lost
0: Farm God. and the June scores. Is Boogal Run still a success?
3: It, well, not no, because it's so remote. You couldn't just go okay, up, off, off. But if you moved move it, it to it, Cheltenham, it would absolutely brain it. it what do you reckon, like, you played it. it? It would kill it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's spectacular. People would talk about it and come from all over the world to play it, even if it was just that, as long as it was somewhere accessible. So what's been done? I find that hard. To the problem is, I think golf clubs in Australia need a membership to survive. We're we're Mm -hmm. so reliant on the club system with, uh, you know, a clubhouse and you know, thousand or so subscription paying members. Um, That's what sustains golf in Australia. And uh, are people going to sign up for that if they can't Mm -hmm. play eighteen holes and submit their rounds for handicapping? Which of course they can, even on a you know. Fourteen hole course or something weird numbered course, you can still get handicapped, but uh, it just they feel like they're getting a lesser product. I think when there's other options all around them in a metropolitan area. So, is it can it be sustained completely on um, yeah. public golf without members? Because even every public go- course in Australia also has members. It's apart from resorts, even but even them have some members. It we're just so reliant on memberships and subscriptions. It's,
3: it's- but, but how many how many really good suburban public courses in Australia, rather. Like, Doke six and above. Zero. No, no not not one.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting. And I, I wonder I if bet- the reason for that is because they've got members and subscriptions so they don't have to be good to attract, uh, you know, to attract a market. Like, it, it's it works having a, just enough money to not, you know, to survive without having to improve the product.
3: Well, the problem with a place like, well, Public Golf in Melbourne, Someone has a lease on the golf course. So to, to, to make Yarra Bend, for example, a better golf course, and it's got some brilliant greens there, in, but to make that a better golf course, you've got to close the golf course, you've got to spend $3 million, rebuild a whole bunch of it, and you could take it from a dope three to a dope five. So you lose a year's revenue, it costs you $3 bucks. No one's ever going to do that because the council essentially own it, and someone's got the lease for 25 years. And if you're 10 years into the lease... Why would you invest $4 million and lose a year's revenue to make the golf course better? That's never going to happen. So the only way that happens is if the state government invests in a place like Sandringham and they and they pay to shut the golf course and the golf course is fixed. And the benefit of that is for the next 100 years, rather than wasting money on car parks in Melbourne for marginal electorates, <laughs> they can actually build a golf course that goes from a... Do- Two or doke three to a doke five. And it's going to be brilliant for another hundred years. So it was an amazing, but but it takes government investment to do that because the people who have the lease on the on the on the course for twenty five years are never going to invest the money because they're never going to get it back. So we're stuck with, with lousy golf, not lousy golf, golf that is okay but could be so much better. The model doesn't let us make it any better. Instead, we spend money on car parks and. Yeah, you know, shooting fields in Wagga Wagga because that's where the premiers boyfriend lives, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. This
0: is fantastic.
1: I mean, Frank. I mean, I always come back to Frankston as uh, an interesting experiment because they they've just got a completely different financial setup. Mm-hmm. Like the com- the way it's run commercially is just completely. It's
3: a different. great example. It's a brilliant example yeah. of yeah. how much it's- money how much money we waste on car parks and clubhouses. Yeah. and
0: it's gravel yeah. car you, park at Unless you
3: get the millionaires government
0: plates and then it's okay. You don't have to spend your own. But isn't this, in fact, doesn't this go to the heart of what golf initially started? So let's take Augusta National as an idea. When it first started, it was a pretty simple concept. You have 1,000 members. It costs you 100,000 to run the golf course for the year. Everyone put in 100 bucks.
3: And they couldn't and, get a member. Yeah,
0: no, no yeah. But, but the model we have in terms of a business for golf clubs, particularly here in Australia, is the members demand that that membership be subsidised by other activities that the club has to run so that it's not working on that system. Golf would be a lot simpler if that was the idea. There's a 1,000 members, the running costs are 100,000, there's 100 bucks each, you get the bill at the end of the year and you pay it. But what holds it back is this notion of the club having to run as a business to subsidise people's memberships. So then you get people wasting money on clubhouses to become wedding venues and then discover that the wedding business is actually extraordinarily competitive and the margins are pretty tight and you've only got to miss two weeks of weddings and suddenly you don't make your mortgage payment and and we get into trouble in those sorts of ways. So it's, it's the business model of golf, particularly in Australia, that's somewhat broken. Um, partly because of the size of the assets you're dealing with, and so the cost of the the initial cost of land and buildings, and then the ongoing upkeep, maintenance, and running. So I'm just not sure. But somebody at some point, I'm convinced, will be bold enough to do the six or twelve hole golf course, and it will be a success. And then the floodgates will open.
3: That's yeah, what it feels like to me. I mean, we'll see more of them. Cheltenham, right next right next to Victoria, is a nine hole course with three lousy holes down the bottom, but. Six holes on great land, not great land but really good land and you could make a brilliant six-hole course. That would be amazing. But could you sell that? Well, if, if someone said to me the only golf you can ever play the rest of your life is one to six at Royal Melbourne, that would do me fine. Yeah, you'd be all right. Mm, that's yeah, fine yeah. with me. Sign so, me up. Sign <laughs> me up. Yep. And, you know, you can't make six holes at Cheltenham as good as the first six holes at Royal Melbourne because they might be the best first six holes in the world. But you can make it really good, really good.
0: Does any of this have a real-world impact, though, Clayton? So this is us sitting there and talking and thinking about golf. Does it really make any difference to golf, the numbers of golf and growing the game and all that stuff, how good these facilities are?
3: Yeah. Well, I think, I think ultimately the future of golf is going to be dependent on how interesting and compelling and beautiful and fun the game is to play. And the more interesting, beautiful and compelling the golf course architecture is, the, the, the more people are going to want to play golf. Now, if everyone... Could play golf on a course as good as Royal Melbourne. Everyone would play golf. Not everyone, but there'll be a lot more people playing golf than right now because one incredible. Experience it is playing golf and of course that's that good. Not just walking Royal Melbourne is yeah. enough. I
0: am happy to watch other people play Royal. <laughs> it's one of the few places in the world you can just go to and watch other people play golf and be completely satisfied with the experience. Not not good people either. Like Yeah, no, no, ha- choppers. Packets. Yeah, hackers. Yeah. Just watch it. In yeah. fact, in some ways they're more fun to watch. I remember when I used to do that, that Lexus Cup that Golf Link used to run when I worked there some years ago, like one of the duties there was to ring people each week and tell them that, you know, they'd won the prize and whatever and I think 12 of them used to go off to Royal Melbourne. That was the grand prize mm-hmm. at the end of the year. And to a person, they'd be on the phone terrified, you know, oh, Royal Melbourne, it's so hard. Are we good enough to play there? It's like, just take your seven on your putty, you'll be fine. You'll shoot five over your handicap. It's the easiest golf course in the world, isn't it, Clayton? But the, the perception well, amongst people was it's considered a great golf course. It must be super hard and it's anything but.
3: Royal Melbourne's the easiest course of the top 50 in Australia to play to your handicap, I yeah. think. Without. If you're if you're a bogey player, yeah, yeah.
0: If you as long as you don't get, <laughs> know
3: as, as long as you don't go there when the greens are silly at fourteen or fourteen feet. But yeah. if you go there when the greens are running at ten, and you play off the play off the back tees and to shoot ninety, if you're a competent eighteen handicapper, is not that difficult. Yeah.
0: And to a, I went to, I think, two of those finals down at Royal Melbourne, and the energy afterwards as people came off the course was like an awakening for most of them. Most of them came from outside of Victoria because people came from each sort of state. And it was like an awakening. People hadn't seen golf like that before. There's this revelation of somebody who's you know, grown up playing at a, a Sydney suburban golf course, tree line, kikuyu grass and that sort of stuff. It was almost unrecognisable as golf for those. But they recognised something that thing about it—that was amazing about it it was an incredibly energising experience. So I agree with you, Clates. So I think architecture is incredibly important. I think golf overlooks it almost, almost a hundred percent. Almost and- nobody in positions of power and authority at clubs and high levels ever give it a thought. They think it's the least important thing.
3: Yeah, and no one. Well, there were there were no no one. I don't think anyone I spoke to thought Bambougle would be a success when I was talking about that back in. 2000 when we were, it was mooted that, we, that there was going to be a course there no one thought that would work the only people who thought it would work were Tom Doak thought it would work, Mike Kaiser thought it would work and convinced Richard Sadler that it would work and I thought it would work I remember Bruce Grant, my partner, going down there and building bunkers down there for a week and coming back and saying no one's ever going to go down there it's, it had his head blown off for a week in a hurricane he so said no one's ever going to go and play golf and it's a nightmare and it's been the most successful development in Australia ever because it's just great golf in a, in, a, in a on perfect land for golf.
0: The concern about bamboo has always been its long-term viability and I think it's proved now that its long-term viability is pretty solid but that would have always been the the, the problem for remote golf places is always will people go back? You go and you have a great time when you walk off the 18th green on day 3 you're like oh I can't wait to get back here but 3 weeks back at home in Marcher that's forgotten and the notion comes oh no look we'll just go around the corner this year instead.
3: What's the problem? It's, no it's got to be great and the experience of going there has to be, one, it's got to be worth it, and two, it's got to be great. And the experience of going to Bamboogle is it's a 24-hour experience. It's not just turn up, play, and leave. No. I don't think Bamboogle would have been as successful in a place where you could just drive to it and play and come home again. That's true. Yeah,
0: The, the trek is part of it, and it's, it's just the right trek, Bamboogle. Yeah. I mean, if you come from America, it's a long way. But, you know, from Sydney, it's just, you know, four hours from the time you wake up to the time you maybe hit the front door there at Bamboo, it's just right. And then it's, you know, you're sort of self-contained there for a couple of days and it's fantastic. They don't pay us anything, Bamboo. You know that. Don't. Well, they probably paid you because well, you of course, but they don't pay me. There's anything. a funny
3: story about that. When, of course, so, so much of the golf course review stuff in both magazines is just advertorial. And when the magazines rang Richard and said, "Yeah, know, we'll come and do a story and put you on the cover. And Richard said, why would I do that? I'm just going to, you know, this place will advertise itself. That's exactly and right. He's barely spent a dollar on no, ever sure. on promoting that golf course, and there's no golf course that's had better promotion than Bamboogle. That's very and He hasn't crazy. paid for a dollar for it.
0: We did a whole episode on it after Loeb went there, didn't we? I think it's a, it really is something quite special. We won't go into that again, but it's a, it really is quite the, it serves a very important role in Australian and world golf, I think, Bamboo, and places like it.
3: And
1: about 30 minutes of that episode was on the seafood chowder, which is yeah. I don't even eat seafood. <laughs> I had to listen to you, <laughs> you like a the chowder. Stoke Nine, at seafood (laughs) Channel.
0: Okay, get out of here. We've officially come to an end. I've just had a look at the time. We've been going on for too long. Clay, it's been great to have you aboard as always, Logue. Always good to have your company as well. That wraps up episode 87 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, but we will, of course, be back to do it all again next week with episode 88 here on the Good
2: Good Golf Podcast.